Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please take it out and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you've been with us for the past few months, we've been on this journey through the expat life. And today the sermon series comes to a close with the end of Peter's epistle, Peter's letter of 1 Peter. You could say as you read chapter 5 that these are Peter's final instructions to us. And if you remember throughout the book, Peter has exhorted us with rich doctrines. We've seen doctrines like election and regeneration, sanctification, and we've seen how these rich doctrines, how rich theology actually fuels our worship. Peter's told us how to love our wives, how to love our husbands, how to honor God at work, how to live peaceably with the authorities of our country. And now today, in his closing words, he reminds us again, as he has again and again and again, that Though hardships will come as as an expat, there will be persecutions, there will be tribulations, there will be difficulty, there will be struggles, and these things will continue on for a while. That this devil, that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now the evil one wants to destroy us before we see the consummation of our citizenship in heaven. And so Peter concludes his book with his final instructions. You know, in a world where trouble is entering the door of our lives, it's always entering the door of our lives, how do we, as Christians, live lives honorable to God? Well, Peter's going to give us three things in our passage. If you're taking notes, maybe they're in the bulletin or in a notebook, or you're following along in your Bible, Peter's going to give us three things. There's, there's a lot in our passage this morning, but we'll, we'll hit three main things that we need as Christians in this expat life to, to survive the hardships, trials, difficulties that we encounter. Three things. First, that we need godly leaders. We need godly leaders who are going to lead us in this time. Second, we need to be devoted members. We need to be devoted members. And then third, we need to be faithful Christians. Godly leaders, devoted members, faithful Christians. So that's where we're heading. That's where Peter is heading here at the end of his book. So first, let's start with godly leaders. Look there at verses 1 through 4. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. If you remember back in chapter 4, we've seen that suffering and persecution faces believers and that Christians must respond appropriately. Here Peter says that to live rightly, we need godly leaders to help us. Specifically, we need elders who honor God. Fundamentally, that's what an elder is. An elder is a godly man. But Peter goes a bit deeper. He gives us three contrasting ways of describing what an elder should look like. Right there in the passage, there in verse 2. An elder is to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly. 
You know, just as we sang in our last song, this is God's flock. You're God's flock. This church is God's flock. This church doesn't belong to us. This church doesn't belong to the elders of this church, but it belongs to God. And elders are given the privilege of shepherding God's flock here on earth. You know, it's the image of a shepherd and his sheep. You know, if you know anything about sheep, they're rather, rather interesting. They spend most of their time eating and drinking. If you ever go to a countryside, obviously not here in Dubai, but maybe if you're from parts of Europe and you go off and you see the sheep, they're spending most of their time eating and drinking. But if they become lost, they're helpless to find food, helpless to find water. They'll eat poisonous plants. They'll, they'll overeat. They don't know when to stop. And their oily wool gets dirty. Grass clings to it. And they have absolutely no ability to clean themselves. And so unless a shepherd shears the wool, they could get sick from infection. They could even die. Sheep are passive against predators. They can't defend themselves. And so the shepherd stays near the sheep, keeps the sheep near him so they, he can defend them. He can rescue the sheep from attack with the use of his rod. Well, pastors, in a similar way, are to shepherd, certainly for protection. But the principal daily task of the shepherd and of the elders of the church is to feed the sheep. It's to feed the sheep. They are to ensure that the church is well-fed and well-governed by the Word of God. This is why we preach expositionally here at Redeemer. It means we simply walk through passages of Scripture. We go down verse by verse, and we make sure that the point of the passage becomes the point of the sermon. Because what Jesus doesn't say in the Scripture is that a shepherd is to entertain the sheep. And he certainly didn't tell them to poison the sheep with bad food. But pastors are to serve the church with the life-giving richness of the word of God. It's the main role. I read an article this last week that thousands of pastors uh, leave the ministry every year. And one of the main reasons that pastors leave the ministry is because of this enormous pressure to be everything. Kind of do everything, to be everything, to be the psychologist for the church, the main counselor for the church, the community leader, to be present at every party, to be present at every gathering, kind of be a spokesperson in the community and to do all these things. And what we see is pastors end up spending so much time on these secondary matters that there's no time to do their principal work, which is to feed the sheep through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Now, the greatest way that I can serve you as your pastor and as one of the elders is with the Word of God. And this is why we focus on it. This is why I focus on the study and preparation in the Word of God all throughout the week. That's why I solely dedicate parts of my week. So all day Wednesday, Wednesday evening, all day Thursday, Thursday evening, early Friday morning, at least that part of time I carve out in my schedule to labor over God's God's Word, to study it, to pray through it, to prepare the sermon. And that means for me, it means putting off meetings. It means oftentimes not answering or returning phone calls or even returning emails. I discipline myself to engage in God's word and to ask the Holy Spirit to speak through his word, to empower me to prepare what it is that God would have me speak from his word to you on Friday mornings. You know, I read another quote by a prominent seeker-sensitive preacher that says, you know, preaching is not that important. In fact, limit your preaching to no more than 20 minutes because people don't have much time to spare. 
He went on to say, don't forget to keep your messages light, to keep them informal, liberally sprinkling them with humor and personal antidotes. Well, friends, as your, as your pastor and as an elder of this church, I won't do that. I won't do that. We won't do that as elders of this church. We believe the word of God transforms and changes lives. So we, we won't do that. I won't preach myself. I won't preach my story after story after story. No, we preach God's word. We preach Christ crucified. No, the shepherd's chief job is to feed the sheep. So we will do whatever it takes as your elders at Redeemer to guard that time, to guard this pulpit, to guard the proclamation of the gospel here at this church. And we do so not under compulsion. We do so willingly. We do so with great joy because it is an honor and it is a privilege to steward God's word and to preach it, not with a complaining spirit, but with gladness and with joy. Well, there's a second thing that Peter mentions right here that an elder is to shepherd the flock not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Another thing about godly leaders is they shepherd, not for gain, not for shameful gain, but with eagerness. What he's talking about is that an elder must not lack character. There's a more full description of the characteristics of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or in Titus chapter 1. I encourage you to take some time this afternoon, maybe open up your Bibles and take a look at those chapters. You'll see qualities like self-controlled, and elders to be respectable, to be hospitable. You'll notice as you look at those characteristics of an elder, there's nothing about their charisma or their intelligence or that they're successful in business. Now, when you look at those qualities, uh, you, you might notice, as Don Carson has noticed, that the only remarkable thing about those qualities of an elder is that they are truly unremarkable. There's nothing remarkable about them outside of being able to teach. All they are is characteristics that all men should strive for. They are characteristics of godliness, of holiness, of right living. Now, friends, you need leaders who will guide you in tough times. So don't appoint elders who care about the money or about the prestige because the moment times get tough, you won't have a leader anymore. You want a leader who loves the church and who serves with the with their heart out of true compassion. What's the third thing right there in the text? The third thing about elders. An elder is to shepherd the flock, not domineering them, but as an example to them. Now we want elders at Redeemer, we want elders at churches who are servants, who serve as an example for others. Elders who are kind and gentle and humble. We want elders who lead with their lives, whose marriages are above reproach, that they govern their households well, they work hard, their words are edifying, they don't tear down, but they build up. They're patient with those struggling. And elders are to do this, you see in verse 4, they're to do this with anticipation of a reward. There's a crown for how they shepherd the flock. Hebrews 13 says that an elder will take account before God for how well they shepherded the flock. Both a sobering verse for me and our elders, and yet an encouraging one as well. A Redeemer Church of Dubai, this is a portrait of what an elder should look like. This is of necessity if we're going to make it through difficult days ahead. We need godly leaders. We need godly elders. Do you know who the elders of Redeemer Church of Dubai are? Do you know who these men are? Do you know the names of the men who cheerfully and faithfully take up responsibility to shepherd the flock? 
Well, turn with me in your bulletin to pages 12 and 13. If you don't know, maybe you're new to the church or maybe you've been coming for a while and just haven't met the elders, the, the men who help lead the church, who give direction to the church, whose primary aim and responsibility is to shepherd the flock. Right there, you'll see, you'll see a plurality of elders. And you might ask, well, why are there a plurality of elders? Is it so that when things go wrong, I have someone else to blame? Well, that would be nice, but that's not exactly the reason at all. No, we have a plurality of elders because each time the Bible speaks of elders, it's emphasized in the plural. And we see that in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. I don't have more votes or more power than the other eight elders. I'm not some kind of super elder. We all serve together as a team. We need one another. We serve alongside one another. And if we need to take a vote for something, each of us has one vote. You'll see there are two of us are staff elders meaning we're paid by the church and we're on staff full-time with the church, myself and Glenn Jones. And we have six lay elders, David Lawrence, Eric Kirahura, Brian Parks, Frank Sampson, Tom Samuel, and Max Stiles. Now, being a lay elder or a bivocational elder, it means that these men have full-time jobs outside of the church. They do their work in the church as an elder uh, in an unpaid manner, an unpaid service, Unto God, they serve on the evenings, they serve on the weekends, and they devote their time to shepherding. They, they'll work long days of work and then head to an elder meeting at 7 p.m. That elder meeting will last well past midnight at times, and then we'll go to work the following day. These are men that I am so grateful for. They love Jesus. They absolutely love this church. They're my heroes for their joy and their sacrifice in serving God and serving this church. Well, why do all of you need to hear about this when you're not an elder, when you're a member or an attender? Well, it's because you have a role in guarding the doctrine and the purity of the church. I mean, you need to know our job description. You need to see what God desires in those who will lead the church. Because to survive and to thrive in this expat life, you need to be at a church with elders who will lead you biblically. If we ever go astray, you need to confront us. If I ever teach something here from up front that contradicts what the Bible says or is in error, you need to confront me. You need to confront the elders of this church. See, the standard for us as elders isn't our mere opinions, isn't our mere experience. Our sole authority, our sole standard is the word of God. And if any one of us, if any one of the elders ever veers away from the Bible or if any teaching in this church veers away, away from the true gospel and from what the word of God says, then it is your responsibility to let us know, to come up and confront and talk and question what's being taught. And so friends, I just encourage you to pray to the Lord for wisdom for us, that we as elders would fight sin, that we remain faithful to the task that God has given to us. Use these pages, these two pages in your bulletin as fuel to pray for us in this upcoming week and in the weeks to come. Pray that we would be faithful to Peter's final instructions to elders seen here in 1 Peter chapter 5. So the first thing we need in this expat life, if we're to finish strong, the difficult days ahead is we need godly leaders. There's a second thing. If you're taking notes, it's the second point, the main outline. The second thing in Peter's final instructions for us, he says we need to be faithful members. We need to be faithful members. Look at verse 5. Likewise, 
You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Those younger in the church are to be subject to the elders with humility. Now, it's not exactly clear who Peter's talking about here. Does he mean those who are actually young or younger in the church? Or is he talking about everyone under the elders' authority? Well, he does say there, all of you with humility. Either way, it's clear that Peter wants those in the church to be cooperative with the elders, to be subject to the elders. I mean, he may be singling out those who are younger. Maybe perhaps those that are younger have a harder time, or in this case, have a harder time submitting to the elders, and they need this reminder. Make it your aim to make the work of the elders a joy. Pray for your elders. Encourage them. Give of your finances generously to the church. The church is able to do more and more ministry. Pray that God gives us more godly elders for our good, for God's glory. And join the church as a member. I mean, how can you actually subject yourself to the elders without formally doing so? I mean, some people may react against this and say, well, they don't need to belong to the local assembly. They say they've had a supernatural experience with Jesus on their own, that they love Jesus, that they love Jesus, but they really just don't like the church. Maybe they love Jesus, but they've seen too much hypocrisy in the church, or they love Jesus, but they've seen politics in the church, or they love Jesus, but they just kind of want to do their own thing apart from the church without accountability. But see, in reality, those two things have always gone together. You know, Jesus died for his church. Jesus died for the church, and his plan for spreading his glory in the world is through local assemblies of believers around the world. This is why he's appointed elders in specific local churches to be a corporate display of God's glory to the world. Now, to be a faithful sheep, you must be part of the flock. You have to stick together and commit to helping each other. So here's a question for you. It's a a long one, but here's a question. If you wander from Jesus or from fellowship with his people, who among your Christian friends is close enough to you that they would come find you and make sure this can't happen? If you veer away from the faith or you veer away from the church, who among your friends will come and get you, will come grab you, will come draw you back to the church or draw you back to Jesus? Do you have people like that in your life? One great reason to be a part of the local assembly is so that you can be known. You can be known by the church. And I, for one, am grateful for church membership. I need it. I need help from you. I need your prayers. I need your encouragement. I need you to help correct me if I run astray. I know that I'm not above the law. I know that I'm not free from temptation. I know that at any point the devil prowls around me like a roaring lion seeking to devour me. And I need you to pray for me. I need you to surround me and care for me. I need you to be there to rebuke me, even harshly if necessary, if I run away. I need that safety net. No, I'm not above the law and neither are you. Now, joining the church helps us as elders. It helps us to know who's committed to the church so that we know who we're to be committed to as well. Now, tonight at our members meeting, it is a joy to consider the membership of 21 new member candidates who desire to commit to this church, to covenant together. Some people don't like that. Some people like to go from one place to another, not really committing. They jump around. They go on a never-ending church shopping spree. 
Maybe going to a certain place whenever they feel like it. Maybe when they want that music or they want that preaching or they want to see those friends or they want to go at that time. They just kind of bounce around, just kind of jumping around from place to place, never really digging in, never really missed in any one place because they've never been committed to a specific place. So I urge you, friend, to be committed to a local church. If not Redeemer, then somewhere else where the gospel is preached. And when you commit, give yourself to the church. Give yourself to her. Use your spiritual gifts, as Peter talked about earlier in his epistle. Give those gifts to God. Give those gifts away to the church. Serve with all of your life. Don't waste this time in Dubai. Serve the local church. Serve and give God all the glory with the strength that he provides for the good of his body. Now, if you're going to live honorable lives in this expat life, in times of suffering, times of difficulty, we need godly leaders and we need to be devoted members. We need one another. But there's a third thing we see in our passage, a third main point in our outline that Peter gives in his final instructions. It says that we need to be faithful Christians. We need to be faithful Christians. Let me read the rest of the book, verses 6 on through verse 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. What Peter challenges us with here is that we need to be faithful Christians. It's not easy because as we see in verse 8, Peter tells us that there's an evil one who wants us defeated at all costs. This passage is about the schemes of the devil, the The Bible's clear that the devil exists, that evil exists. And yet there are often two kinds of extreme responses to the devil. Some just kind of laugh about the devil. They kind of say, well, he's not really real. He doesn't really affect us. They kind of laugh. They put him off as something not that important to deal with. There are others who think the devil's behind everything. They give the devil too much credit every time they commit sin, they point to the little little devil they imagine on their shoulder, and they say, well, the devil made me do it. Well, Peter wants us to know that the devil is real. I'm not saying that today after the service we'll be passing out exorcism kits at the welcome table on your way out. Not Not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is that the devil is real. Peter wants us to know the devil is real. He opposes Christians and he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
And yet as we read scripture, we know that we are liable for our sin. The Bible never separates sin from the devil's work. The Bible says the devil has a foothold through your sin. Now once Sir Tim Keller uh, talked about it this way, he said that, that your sin is the strings in a piano and the devil is the piano player. That a piano player without strings doesn't make much music. The strings without a piano player can't make music either. That you need both. That Satan and sin, the devil and sin are bound together. And the way that the devil is to deal with your sin, and the way that to deal with the devil, I should say, is to deal with your sin so that he has nothing on which to play on. You know, if you keep a grudge, then the devil is that piano player playing Beethoven's ninth on your grudge. If you look at someone lustfully, the piano player is playing on your lust. I mean, greed, pride, it's the same thing. When we sin, the devil has all this opportunity then to play on that sin, to dramatize it, to explode it, to make it known, to bring it out into the open. And so Peter says, be watchful, be sober-minded, watch for the evil one who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And he mentions two big areas that the devil tries to get a foothold in our sin right there in the passage. First is through our pride. The devil wants to play music on our pride. Pride is the resistance to the grace of God. Pride refuses and blocks the grace of God. Pride is by nature anti-grace. In essence, this is the response of everyone who doesn't believe in the gospel. You know, there are really only two responses when you're confronted with the gospel, this message that God saves sinners. The first is one group who might say, well, this gospel's primitive. It's obscene. It's insulting. I'm really not that bad. And God is really not that mad. And other people say, well, oh, I'll figure it out on my own. You know, I'm, I'm pretty terrible. So I'll clean myself up first. Before I get to God, I'll clean myself up first and I'll come to God later. You know, these inferiority or superiority complexes are both pride. You know, one group thinks they are good. The other group knows they're not. One group accepts the bad news, but not the good news. Both groups are self-righteous. You know, many people will say, I have sinned. And I know God forgives me, but I don't know if I can forgive myself. Well, friends, even that thought is pride. You know, when we say that we disagree with God's verdict against our sin and the propitiation, this satisfying of God's wrath that he has put forth on the body of Jesus and his death on the cross, it's, it's like we're saying to Jesus, well, thanks. Thanks for dying for me. I'm glad you did that, but your blood isn't powerful enough for me. That's what you say when you can't forgive yourself. You say, well, great, Jesus, but it, it doesn't cover my sin. You look humble, but it's actually pride masquerading as humility. Now, if the idea that God loves you doesn't thrill you, you say, I don't need it, or it's not enough for me, either way, either way, it's pride. And it's huge because Peter tells us that God opposes the proud. You see that? Pride puts you on a collision course with God. God is literally against you. I mean, humility always takes a very different form than superiority or inferiority. Humility thinks so much of Jesus that any thoughts of self are absorbed in being satisfied in Christ alone. 
Well, how do you do that? How do you what do you do what Peter's talking about? Well, he tells us there. He says, clothe yourself with humility. You put it on. I mean, literally, it means you tie it on by thinking about your grace. You remind yourself of the grace of Christ. You remind yourself that all your success, everything you've been given in this life is the grace of God. You remind yourself by looking at the scriptures and reading your Bible daily. You come across Daniel and the lions, then you realize that it was all grace. Or Moses and the Red Sea crossing. Grace. David defeating Goliath. Grace. Esther faithfully saving her people from ethnic cleansing. Grace. Paul turning from murderer to evangelist and church planting. Oh, it was all grace. All of it was grace. All of it is grace. You know, many of you joined us last Friday night at our third anniversary party. I mean, what a joy it was to celebrate God's grace over these three years. I was towards the front, and uh, while we were singing, right before I came up to speak, I was looking there at the beautiful backdrop that was made and reading the words, Redeemer turns three. In that moment when I kind of read those words and let it sink in for a moment, I just broke down. Broke down in tears. I couldn't sing anymore. I just had to stop. So I was reminded that in planting this church, remembering years ago when this dream of planting this church was kind of a pie in the sky type of dream. I just thought about all the hard work that multitude of people have put in to see this church plant started. I was reminded of all that God has done in these past three years. I was reminded that he has always provided a place for us to meet, even in difficulty and searching out for one. I was reminded of God's faithfulness to me and to us in the midst of all my health problems and my surgeries and difficulty. I was thinking about the great elders, the great staff, the great members, the great launch team that helped get this thing going. And I was just overwhelmed. Just overwhelmed. And I just sat there and I just, or just stood there and I just wept. I wept because it was all grace. And then I looked at that sign. I just started imagining that sign. And the Redeemer turns three. And I just imagined it changing year after year. Redeemer turns four. Redeemer turns five. Redeemer turns ten. Redeemer turns twenty. Thirty. Lord willing, lasting far beyond the time of any of us. Just broke down and just realized that this is all God's grace. Isn't it? It's overcome that this is all His grace. Every last drop of God's grace has been poured out on us because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to save sinners. All of it. All of it is His grace. Just overwhelmed. I pray that we're overwhelmed by even the thought of all that He has provided for us. No, God makes it clear through the Bible. God makes it clear in our ministry as a church. God makes it clear in our individual lives, in the lives of our family, that He does all the work so that He gets all the glory. He does it all for his glory. And so we are to humble ourselves before God and to clothe ourselves with humility because this is what God did for us. There's no place for pride. No matter how good we live or how hard we serve, we deserve to be rejected because each one of us has sinned against a holy God. No matter how hard we try at keeping the Ten Commandments, we just can't do it. We deserve death, all of us do. But see, the moment that you repent of your sins and believe in Christ, God treats you as if you have done everything Jesus has ever done. 
Let's say that again. Just understand this. The moment you repent of your sins, the moment you believe in Christ, God treats you as if you have done everything that Jesus has ever done. God treats believing sinners, treats believing sinners as if they have done everything Jesus has has done. This, my friends, is the gospel. It is radical that God saves sinners. That Jesus lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died on the cross as payment for our sins. That he rose from the dead, proving that he was indeed whom he said he was, God in the flesh. And now by faith in him, Jesus gives us the life he lived and he credits his righteousness to us. The death he died is our death because in him we die. We die to our sin and our our old ways. Jesus raised from the dead and he has raised us too. He will raise us. We are in new life in him. Well, friend, if you're here and you're not a believer, maybe this is your first time in a church gathering. Maybe you've just stumbled in or maybe you've been invited by a friend. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you've been considering this message. Maybe you've been hearing all the sermons in 1 Peter and you've been considering this glorious message that Christ died to save sinners. Maybe until now you've either thought you could earn your way to heaven or perhaps you've thought that you are too wicked to earn God's grace. Maybe your past is marred with sin. Maybe your past is marred with licentious living. Maybe right now you are steeped in some embarrassing sin. Well, friend, I want to tell you that all can come to Jesus. All of us can come to Jesus because he has taken all our sin on the cross. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I've come to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. Well, friend, turn from your sin and believe in him. In that moment, the Bible says you will be accepted to God through Christ, and you will be saved. I urge you to do that today. Humble yourself before God. So there Peter addresses our pride, one of the footholds that the devil holds on to one of the footholds that the devil plays on. But there's a second sin that Peter mentions that will be a foothold of the devil. A second foothold is through our anxiety. Through our anxiety. I don't know if you know this, but anxiety is a sin. It is. We don't often think about it that way, but anxiety is a fear. It's a form of cowardice. You know, when you get to the end of your Bible and you turn to Revelation 21, it's a bit scary. It talks about condemnation for the cowards and the faithless, the murderers, the fornicators. And you read and you think, well, okay, certainly the fornicators, the murderers, but the cowards? And what are the cowards doing in there? You can't help being a coward. I can't help that I'm afraid. I can't help that I'm anxious. Well, actually, you can. See, anxiety is always a refusal to see how much God loves you and cares for you. Anxiety is always a refusal to see how much God loves you and how much he cares for you. It's a refusal to see God's love for you. Do you know what it's like to be mistrusted by someone whom you have given everything to? You know, you do everything for this person. You do it all And this person still doesn't trust you. Well, if you're worried, if you're anxious and you're a Christian, this is what you're doing. This is what you're doing to God. Romans 8 says that he has given you his very begotten son. 
And in Christ, he has given you all things. If you're worried and you're afraid of what's going on in your life, God says this to you today. I sent my son to die on the cross for you. I sent my son to forgive you of your sins. I sent my son to give you everlasting life. I sent my son so that the Holy Spirit would dwell within you. And friend, I've done all this to you, and you're worried that I won't care for you now? No, friends, worry is always a stab at the integrity of God's love. It's a stab at God's integrity always. It's not innocent. It's it's never innocent. Well, then what do you do about anxiety and cowardice? Well, first, Peter says, if you're worried, humble yourself. You know, these two points that Peter gives us, they're actually connected. You see, worry always stems from an overconfidence in your own opinion. You think you know how your life should go. You evaluate your life circumstances and you're confident that God must be asleep on the job. And so essentially worry is pride because it denies the care of a sovereign God. Well, second, Peter says cast your anxiety on God. So humble yourself but then cast your anxiety on God. This literally means to throw out, to to cast. It has to do with fishing, casting down your net. The net must be weighted down so that it'll sink and fish will swim in and, and be caught. Peter says the things that weigh us down need to be thrown upon God. And we're to lay specific anxieties on God. Trust him and realize that you don't always see the 10,000 things that God is currently doing in your life. You don't know what, he, what he's doing at times. So casting your anxiety on God means trusting him for handling specific situations in your life. Now, I, I can relate. Right here, worry, anxiety. This is a huge struggle for me personally. This is a big struggle of mine. And recently, this manifested itself in a, in a real way in my life. We were working on new office space as a church. We had looked at lots of places, and we hoped something would work out. It was a perfect place. I thought this would be a perfect place for us as a staff to have offices and Things were progressing well, and then things at the last moment, everything just fell apart. It, it, it didn't work. And I remember in the midst of that, having a couple almost sleepless nights and panic about it. Just irrational thoughts, but I was panicked. I was worried. I even had irrational thoughts that our church would be ruined without these offices. That not having this office space would cripple our staff's ability to work as a team. I was just panicked. I was nervous. But see, in those moments, in that moment of worry and panic, I was exhibiting the highest form of pride. It was pride because I felt that I knew what was best for our church. And it was literally keeping me up in bed at night. See, but God plans and sees 10,000 connections that we never see. And this whole office space situation. God knows our budget situation and what we'll have throughout this year. God knows security concerns that could have arise with that particular office. God knows all these connections. God knows all these things, and he's planned everything for his glory and our good. He sees all. He plans all, and it's all for his glory. So Jesus tells us, who by worrying can add a single day to your life? He says that because there's no point. I'm in control. All that comes to pass, I've planned for my glory. You're good so you can rest easy at night. You can sleep well at night. Now, friend, we are to cast those anxieties on to God. See, even holy worries, 
H-O-L-Y, holy worries, that sometimes we think, well, it, it's okay to worry about the church or the church offices or, or it's okay to worry about family. It's okay to worry about our kids or worry about our spouse. Well, we ought to be concerned, but even those holy worries, Peter says, we're to leave those to the Lord. We're to cast all. All means everything. We're to cast all anxieties on the Lord. Everything. Because our concerns are his concerns, because we are his concern. It's not wonderful to think about that we are his concerns. You know, the, the great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink once said that God is never idle. That he never stands by passively looking on. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? What are you experiencing in the difficult moments of your life? Are you tempted to question God's goodness? Do you have sleepless nights? Or can you rest peacefully in the fact that God is a better ruler of your life than you are? No rest in his sovereignty. Your life is not out of control. Well, actually, it is out of your control, but it's never out of God's control. Do you believe the Lord cares for you? He cares about your concerns, about your responsibilities, opportunities, the situations and locations that you live in. He cares about your relationships. He cares about your temptations. He cares about your weaknesses. He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. I I don't think I can say that enough this morning. And let that dwell in your soul. God cares for you. Or are you resting in the Lord? Or are you trapped in that little world of personal concern? Now, if we are going to thrive in Dubai, in our jobs, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, or anywhere as expats, for God's kingdom, living in God's kingdom, then we must be a people who place our cares on the Lord. And a people who are sober-minded, watchful for the devil because he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. You know, as we speak this very moment, people are being destroyed. You know, in the book of Job, Satan knew Job's name. He knew Job's family, he knew Job's income, even perceived to know Job's motives. You know, it's interesting when you study lions. As they approach a herd, a lion looks for the weak. They look for the foolish. They look for the separated. You know, if he sees one veer away from the shepherd, then he jumps on him. He's lurking at a distance, waiting to pounce on his target. A sheep by itself is the weakest animal, but a sheep that clings to the shepherd and the other sheep becomes the strongest. It's the same, the same is true for the Christian who runs from the shepherd and runs from his fellow sheep. The devil is out there like a lion, just lurking, just seeking to devour someone. Are you living watchfully? Are you following godly leaders? Are you devoted to the church? Are you faithfully following Christ? Now, I, love, I love this story 
uh, from The Last Battle. It's one of C.S. Lewis's books in the Narnia series. And there's an ape in the book named Shift. And Shift gets really concerned about his own glory. He starts developing schemes to try to glorify himself and to glorify his name. And so he enlists the help of, a, of an old donkey named Puzzle. And they come across a big dead lion carcass, a lion's skin. And so the ape has a great idea. He grabs Puzzle the donkey and says, let's dress you up as a lion. Let's bring glory to ourselves as a lion. So they take the lion's skin and ape sews it on the donkey. He takes the lion's arms and sews it on the donkey's arms. He takes the lion's tail and he sews it on the donkey's tail. And their goal was that that, he, that this lion would be perceived. I mean, the, the ape even said that now no one will doubt that you are the great lion, Aslan, this Christ-like figure in C.S. Lewis's book. But see, it was rather obvious. You could see as you looked at this fake lion, you could see through the lion's mouth this donkey's face. You could see the donkey's ears. You could see the donkey's awkward smile. You could see the donkey trying to walk. Like a lion, it was, it was obvious. Eve, if you had seen a lion with a split second, you would obviously know this isn't the real thing. Even if you had never seen a lion before, you would look at this thing and pretty quickly know that this isn't the fierce king of the jungle. And in fact, that's true. Later, uh, King Tyrion, the great king there under the night sky, saw this pretend lion for who he really was as this yellow Thing turned clumsily around. It was obvious. See, the ape and the donkey tried to pull off the impossible. And so it is with the devil. This devil is a cheap imitation of the great lion of Judah. A cheap imitation. So friends, don't be overcome by the fact that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Remember that he is not the king. He's not the king. Resist him. Submit to the great shepherd. See, the way a sheep gets away from the lion is by getting closer to the shepherd. This is how Peter survived the expat life. Even to the end. At the end of Peter's life, he faced his executioners. He was there in his city and he was sentenced to crucifixion. But Peter objected. He objected saying that he's not worthy to die in the same way that the Lord Jesus had died. And so complying to his request, it crucified Peter upside down. And even unto death, even in death, Peter showed his humility in giving himself to his Lord. He showed us that the way to resist the devil, to resist the evil one, is to stay close to Jesus, the great shepherd. Well, friends, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let it not be you. Let it not be any one of us. Let us pursue Christ in this place to the honor and glory of God. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that as a church, as a congregation here in Dubai, that we would faithfully pursue Christ. That we would stand firm in our faith. That we would resist the schemes of the evil one. That though he prowls around us 
Oh, Father, would we stand firm? There's times of anxiety. There's times that we want to quit what we're doing. There's times that we are, are hit by lie after lie after lie, discouragement after discouragement. Oh, when peace like a river attendeth our ways and sorrows like sea billows roll, or whatever our lot would be, we know that you, Father, have taught us to say that it is indeed well with our soul. Father, whatever anxiety we face, we know that it is well with our soul. Father, whatever's going on in our individual lives lives this morning, whatever anxieties, whatever difficulties, whatever sin is weighing us down, Father, we pray that we would sing with gladness this morning. That each of us could sing with gladness that with Jesus Christ, the one who has covered our sins with his blood, each of us can shout out that it is well with my soul. Pray this in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.